Hello. Welcome to the CMS Colloquium. Um, I'm Nick Monfort, and I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, Jesper Yule. He's here. He teaches at the um, NYU Game Center. Um, Jesper also has one of the first PhDs in video games, not the very first, uh, as, as we were discussing, uh, but uh, uh, one of the first who didn't uh, continue to a career in massage instead of a career in academia. Um, so um, I was going, of course, the cleverest thing for me to do uh, would have been to um, introduce Jesper by, uh, by outlining several of his failures. And uh, that would have uh, uh, been perhaps uh, amusing, but it would have been a failure <laughs> on my part to introduce him. And while I might learn from that failure personally, uh, just as uh, video game players do, um, you wouldn't learn. So I want to mention uh, some, of, uh, some of the things that Jesper has done, including these, these fine uh, books, the first of which, Half Real, vi uh, Video Games Between Real Rules and Fictional Worlds, is a really excellent description of how video games have special qualities that aren't found in uh, traditional board and card games, that they have the ability to engage with fictional worlds in a significantly richer and deeper way. And there is actually perhaps... Um, some element of failure or reconsideration or revision that goes into this. I'm thinking of Jesper's 2001 presentation at Brown in Games Telling Stories. Um, this uh, is a discussion that, uh, in which he began trying to make these uh, uh, very sharp distinctions between what games were and what stories were. And where that led him eventually was to a book in which he was really looking at how they were distinct in certain ways and engaged in other ways. And so uh, that's one of the things I really respect about Jesper is his ability to... Um, uh, to see um, what, wh what is productive and what needs reconsideration um, about thinking and to move forward with that. Um, and, of course, Games Telling Stories is still, is still taught worldwide by people who have no idea that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that he has progressed in his own thinking. Um, casual, revo uh, casual Revolution, uh, Reinventing Video Games and Their Players, uh, is Jesper's next book. And there um, he uh, discusses uh, uh, and the important question of really how to define and characterize what a casual game, which everyone seemed to know what it was, uh, really is. And, um, and uh, ha developing a concept that enlarges that to activities like uh, Guitar Hero and Rock Band um, and, uh, and considers that uh, the re relationship between gaming and audience and the changing relationship between gaming and, and perhaps that uh, the idea of the hardcore gamer and the uh, particular enthusiast uh, who is of a very limited category is uh, the main thing that's uh, repudiated by casual gaming. And, of course, uh, we're looking forward to hearing tonight about The Art of Failure, his most recent book about um, playing video games and... Uh, sometimes, as in this Konami track and field screenshot, um, not succeeding uh, on your way toward uh, mastery and uh, toward uh, the pleasure of uh, success at the game. Um, Jesper's also involved on the side of uh, production and has been involved uh, in, I think, some very <laughs> intriguing ways in uh, producing digital media, producing video games. And aside from his, you know, uh, strict, strictly speaking, industry experience, I want to highlight his role in the Commodore 64 demo scene <laughs> and uh, his production during a game jam of the game 432, uh, which is a game that, um, um, among other things, requires you to uh, uninstall Java, turn off uh, JavaScript, install Microsoft Silverlight, uh, and uh, undertake other sorts of um, 
uh, of activities which aren't uh, traditionally recognized as part of gameplay, but which in fact might be even in less conceptual games. So um, we're very glad to hear from uh, Jesper and uh, glad to have him uh, visiting here at MIT. Uh, and so I'll turn you over to him to tell you about the art of failure. All right, thank you. So, so uh, <laughs> uh, thanks a lot and thanks for inviting me and I'm, I'm glad to be here at the great CMS Colloquium series which is a, a fixture on my, my podcast list, definitely. Um, so um, thanks for the introduction, <laughs> Nick. Uh, so Nick already introduced some of the stuff I just wanted to kind of mention briefly. Uh, but I think just to kind of characterize my, my three books in a slightly similar, different way, uh, you could say the, the first book I wrote, Half Wheel, was in a way this kind of big uh, theory of video games. Uh, and, and especially focusing on the rules fiction distinction that I'll be returning to a bit today. Uh, my second book, Casual Revolution, was more about what was happening at a particular point in time a few years ago when the audience for video games was signific significantly enlarged. And um, this was something I think we still see happening in, like, in cell phone games and in the fact that like, the new promoted consoles aren't as technically powerful that, than, that they relatively used to be. And so Out of Failure is about a particular part of video games, uh, but a part which I think has a, like a longer temporal perspective, if you will. Um, it's also part of the Playful Thinking series that I edit on MIT Press with Jeffrey Long and William Uvicio. Uh, this is a series that, that grew out of the Singapore MIT Gamebit Game Lab, now the MIT Game Lab. Uh, we also have another book coming out uh, right now, uh, Greg Kostikian's book on uncertainty. Uh, but this particular book, The Art of Failure, really came about because I was playing probably the millionth game in which I was out of my mind with frustration. And I realized that it seemed there was such a kind of basic question about failure which, on which very little had been said. And so um, it also seemed to me that the question of failure ties into a particular moment in, in kind of popular consciousness. So there's a story that tends to get retold a lot, which is something like this, that even though we think failure is a bad thing, actually it's really productive and we should really cherish it at, at this, as this kind of great learning moment. So we have something like, like Catherine Schultz's book on being wrong here. Uh, but also it's, it seems to be almost its entire own cottage industry of mot motivational t-shirts and posters, this emphasis on failure as something positive. And you should fail faster when you do your startup and all these kind of things. Um, and in a way, my impression or my attitude is that, well, not really. Like, it's just, in a way, it isn't true. Like, that failure also does actually have a raw quality of being <laughs> unpleasant. And uh, that this actually is pretty important. So to give you an idea, let me just read from the kind of the beginning of the book. So it starts like uh, this. Uh, to begin with a confession, I'm a sore loser. Something in me demands that I win, beat, or complete every game I try, and that part of me is outraged and tormented whenever I fail to do so. Still, I play video games, though I know I will fail at least part of the time. On a higher level, I think I enjoy playing video games, but why does this enjoyment contain at its core something that I most certainly do not enjoy? And I was playing this game Patapong. Things were going well, but when I came to the desert, my tactics began to fail. 
I repeated the trusted triangle, triangle, square, circle sequence of button pushes, but my warriors continued to burn to death in the sun. I failed the level, I tried again. I could not glean from the game if my timing was off, if I, if I was using the wrong sequence, or if something completely different was wrong. I put the game away. I returned to it, I put it away again. I did not feel too good about myself. I dislike failing sometimes to the extent that I will refuse to play, but mostly I will return submitting myself to a series of unhappy failures, once again seeking out a feeling that I deeply dread. It is with some trepidation that I admit to my failures in Patapong, but I can fortunately share a story that puts my skills in a better light. I've been looking forward to medias for a long time, so I unwrapped it and selected the main game mode. In a feat of gamesmanship, I believe, I played the game to completion on my very first attempt without failing even once. Naturally, this made me very angry. I put the game away, not touching it again for more than a year. And I've not been able to repeat this first performance, unfortunately. Uh, so, in a way, I've kind of come to think that, you can see, there is something kind of, there, there of course is something that is slightly different in games. So if, you, if, you're, taking, if you're taking a dri driving lesson or you, you, you're taking your driver's license, you don't get disappointed if you never fail. So that, that's not how it works. Right. So I've come to think that video games, in a way, are fundamentally about failing and not about winning. And games are about failure because it's the failure that binds us to the game. So it's the failure that makes us realize that we are flawed. It's the failure that makes us put in effort in order to escape it. And so failure is a kind of moment of truth, a moment that makes us think. It's also the moment where we come to see that we're not doing the right thing, right? that, that we, we thought we knew how the world was connected and, and, and put together, and now we realize that we were wrong in a fundamental sense. So uh, you can frame this as a kind of pi paradox, um, which is um, like this. So in general, uh, as humans, we try to succeed and to avoid failure. When we play games, we experience failure. And so it seems that we seek out games, although we will experience something that we normally avoid. And in a way, this is actually quite common, right? So hundreds of millions of people around the world play video games and games on a regular basis, and most of them will experience failure while playing. So and it seems that in games, we expose ourselves to something that we don't normally like to expose ourselves to. So game developers will often talk about something like balancing or say that a game should be neither too easy nor too hard. Um, unfortunately, this actually doesn't really explain the paradox. It just simply demonstrates, I think, that, that everybody is aware of its existence. But it's also a bit of a, it has a bit of a fractal quality that I'll talk to, and it's a bit of a rabbit hole. So let's go down that rabbit hole of failure. I do think there's a kind of, dark beauty inside games, or an element of pleasure spiked with pain. And this makes games different from other things that are also designed. So the designer of a car, a computer program, or a household appliance are, try are kind of obliged to make sure that you find the designs easy to use. So the designer of a car is expected to help the driver avoid oncoming traffic, or the other designer is supposed to help you prevent from prevent you de deleting important files or not to trick you into selecting the wrong temperature for a wash. And so, of course, this button is hardly a game. So certainly for games, we expect the designer to have made sure that we fail, in, at least in some ways. And similarly, when we play games with other people, 
we probably in general expect our friends and family to help us achieve our goals, but if we're playing a, a competitive game with them, we do actually expect the opposite, right? That they will actually try to prevent us from achieving what we're trying to do. This is, uh, this is expected. So when you play a game, the number of actions that would normally be awkward and rude are recast as pleasant and sociable. You can also see this in single player again. Uh, so if you think of a, a game in the Portal series, so the longer we're stuck in a, you know, when we get stuck in a, in a game in the Portal series, in a, on a particular puzzle, we kind of understand that we are lacking and inadequate. And the, more, the longer we are stuck, the more lacking and inadequate we are. But of course, the game kind of promises, promises that we can remedy the problem if we keep playing. But before we played a game in this series, we probably didn't consider the possibility that we were the kind of person who would have problems solving these kind of warp-based spatial puzzles. Because we've never seen these puzzles before, so it's not, a, it's not something we were anxious about. So you can see that this, in a way, is what games do. Right? They promise us that we can repair an inadequacy, but it's also an, in, an inadequacy that they create in the first place. Uh, and this also means you can kind of compare games to stories in this way, that in a way, if you, if you read a detective story, uh, you follow the detective, and there's always this possibility at the very end that you can believe that you had actually figured it out all along, even if you didn't state it explicitly. Right? And so, so you can always, through stories, we can feel that we are smart and successful, but stories are also polite in that they never call up love. And games are, in a way, more honest, right? That, that we may believe that, that we figured out how things are supposed to work, but if we haven't, the game will actually tell us so. So you can say that novels or movies concern the personal limitations of others, but games concern our actual limitations and self-doubts. And this is actually kind of complicated and special. So it's so complicated and special that there are books that exist to explain this problem to children. So this is a book called uh, Liam Wins the Game Sometimes. Um, and it was created to teach children how to deal with winning and losing. And the author tells the child that it's okay to feel disappointed, but unacceptable to throw a tantrum, because it is being a poor loser and it spoils the whole game. Others do not like playing with poor losers. But I think it's something we dance around. It's that we don't always do what our parents told us, and we don't always do it even as adults. So this is from the 2010 World Cup. I don't know if you, how many of you were following it, but as someone... So my, my impression, my feeling was that, well, the US, the US team was doing surprisingly well. And I, I did think there was this kind of moment where a lot of people were, were thinking, well, actually, soccer is kind of interesting, right? There, there's something kind of good about this sport. And then, then this moment like where, where the US was, was, was eliminated. And then the New York Post, that headline, actually declared the sport is stupid anyway. And I think this points to a fundamental thing, right, in a way that we have ways of denying that we care about failure in games. So we can dismiss a game as poorly made or even stupid, but we also understand that this in a kind of type of defense in a way is so childish that we have to use it in this kind of half-joking way, as in this headline. So I said failure in games is strange in that we seek out something that we normally avoid. This is not a new aesthetic question exactly. This is... Um, it occurred to me when thinking about it that this is actually part of a, a much longer history, uh, or lo much longer discussion, of, often called the paradox of tragedy or the paradox of painful art, 
which again, you can frame this way, like in general, we avoid situations that arouse pa painful emotions, but then we do have painful emotions in response to some art, and then it seems we seek out art that we know will arouse, arouse painful emotions. Again, somewhat weird or somewhat paradoxical. And you can find an, any number of books on the subject, such as like The Paradox of Tragedy or Noel Carroll's book on, on horror cinema. I think in, co in common discussion, this is often explained with reference to, to Aristotle uh, and his concept of catharsis. And in general, it's probably understood to mean that in our regular lives, we have we experience various unpleasant emotions, but that if we also experience these in, in fictional form, we will be cleansed of these emotion in general, emotions in general, and we come away in a way like lighter or, or, or kind of purified in a sense. Um, this doesn't really ring true for games, it seems, because if we experience a humiliating defeat, we really are filled with emotions of humiliation and, and inadequacy. Games don't exactly purge these emotions from us, they produce them in the first place, in a very direct sense. And also, as you know, it's not simply that, the paradox is not simply that games or tragedies contain something unpleasant in them, but that it seems we want this unpleasantness to be there, right? So it's not like if you go to a theme park, you might be annoyed at the fact that there are long queues, but you really don't want the queues to be there, right? So, so but the, in these cases, we do actually do seem to want it to be there. Uh, also, actually, one note about Aristotle here, it's kind of, it's not that clear what Aristotle means. He only mentions catharsis once in the poetics. So, so there's like a history of long disagreement about what, what he actually meant. But it's usually understood as, a, as this kind of cleansing or purgation of unpleasant emotions. Uh, so Aaron Smuts, a philosopher, says in a way that there are typically three different kinds of solution to this paradox. One is the deflation argument, which is saying that... Um, because it's art, uh, it's not actually painful. And, and so in some variations, uh, say Kendall Walton would say that, that even though we may seem to be distressed by, by, by experiencing art, we're only actually pretending to be so. That, that's his argument. Uh, the compensation argument, uh, in a way, is also where, where you might place Aristotle. This is the idea that pain is outweighed, outweighed by positive emotions. So in the, in, for example, in Noel Carroll's theory of, of, of horror, he says that his claim is that we really don't like to see the monster at the center of the story, but that we, we do it because it will give us some, kind of some, some knowledge that we really want. So this is kind of compensation argument. Uh, the third argument is the non-hedonic answer, which is to say that we actually don't really mind pain in the first place. This is, this is a, a slightly more unusual uh, kind of way of solving the problem. Uh, so you can think of it, and also I should say that the compensation, this is also, the compensation argument is also built into the children's book I was quoting, right? This idea that, that in a way, though it may hurt, it's necessary in order to be part of the group. And it's also part of many kind of conceptions of sportsmen or sportspersonship. So you can think of it how it would, would work in a game. So is it such that if you fail in a game, it's harmless just, since it's just a game? Or could it be that it's a price we pay in order to play? Or could it be that actually it's just, like real life, there's no, nothing special about failure in games. And the answer is? Well, all right, let me use another example. So a few years ago, I got a new cell phone that came with a game called Super Real Tennis. And this was this kind of fairly middling uh, tennis game, but it gave me a lot of headaches. And the reason was this, that every time I completed a game, no matter how far I had progressed, it always gave me this message, right? Please check the basic operation methods. And so 
Um, these instructions only told you basically sort of like move the stick left to move left and, and sort of press the button to hit the ball. And so uh, I kept returning to them to try to figure out if there was something I missed. And, and I always kind of kept and, and, and asking myself, like, why did, I, why did the game keep telling me to read the basic instructions? Was I that better player? Were there normal and advanced instructions to, that the game would show to smarter players? And I was pretty convinced that this was some kind of designer oversight, but I couldn't really escape severe self-doubts due to the small free tennis game. Um, so in psychology, this is called, uh, you can discuss this via attribution theory, which is this idea that when something happens, uh, you tend to search for a cause for it. So in this case, I could kind of ask the question, like, was this my fault or was this the game's fault? Uh, could I improve? And in a way, the game seemed to be telling me that I couldn't improve since it was always referring me to the basic instructions. And of course, then there's also the question, was there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me since I couldn't actually progress? And then the game kind of seemed to imply that like regular smart people would actually be progressing where I was not. And so this is in a way like just how a kind of fairly simple kind of message about failure can actually make you feel about it or experience it in very different ways. And so I clearly wasn't playing optimally when, optimally when I was playing super real tennis. And it's that kind of trap that's pretty easy to fall into. In sports psychology, actually, this is a kind of common discussion. So you'll often be told that you have to replace frustration with curiosity when you perform poorly, or that uh, you really have to play for the joy of the game rather than for winning. So again, a kind of paradoxical answer to this question, saying that if you really want to win, you have to play as if winning is not your ultimate goal. And this is actually something you will often find when sports writers write profiles about particular players. So here's one from the New Yorker about Magnus Carlsen, the top chess player right now. And, and he says, well, I don't think I've ever really been into setting these myself these goals. I mean, just playing the game has been enough for me. So my feeling is that this is probably a kind of ideal, and it's probably a kind of ideal that that top athletes to deliberately play up to in, in interviews. Um, and also because you perhaps like just to downplay uh, other kind of benefits you might get from, from being a, a top athlete, obviously. And so when I was upset at a game like Padapong or, or a game like Super Real Tennis, this was obviously wrong of me. So one of the things you do learn is you should take responsibility for your actions. And so this is, again, another aspect of the paradox of failure. So this was a, a small kind of study I did a few years ago where I made a, a small game, and then I had some, a number of players play it through, and then I compared how they rated the game to their explanation of why they failed. And one of the things that became clear was that you would say that in a way it's always nicer to be able to blame someone else for failure. Right? I think in some, on some level. But it was also clear that when people played the game, they rated the game higher when they, when they took the blame for failure rather than when they blamed, say, the game or they blamed a lack of luck. So it does kind of, in a way, kind of demonstrate this thing that you have to go through that painful patch of, of responsibility in order to appreciate a game. And so when we talk about, of, about attribution and about failure in this way, I think you might easily assume that it would be the case that we would always dislike games that insult our skills in some way. Uh, 
But I do think there are actually a number of games that kind of flaunt good manners. So, so this was a game we made at the, at the Singapore MIT Game at Game Lab, uh, which, which is a game that in a particular mode always is, uh, insults the player. So always tells you, like, this is going nowhere, you're not doing anything, uh, how terrible everything is. And when we tested this on, on players, there was a kind of division between some people who felt really insulted, just plainly insulted, and those who kind of un understood it as a kind of taunt that works in the kind of game frame, where it's just a kind of extra motivation. So you can see that again, that even here, there are kind of two different uh, kind of frames in it. One is this idea of the, of, of the game telling you that you're not improving, and this being kind of very demotivating, and the other one is this idea of, of games as being a special space in where you can kind of insult, insult each other and be unhelpful, and this is actually motivating. And this, so you can see how this actually is replicated when you, even when you go down in details. And you can see similarly um, a commercial game like uh, Portal 2 will actually tell you, uh, remember before when I was talking about smelly garbage? That was a metaphor. I was actually talking about you. And, and so uh, in, in Portal, this is, this is a commercially successful game. Uh, but um, where I do think perhaps like people generally kind of buy into it, but uh, I, I assume some people would also kind of dislike it. And, but you can see this in a way is this kind of fractal nature of our reaction to games. So in the big perspective, it seems that games appear to take place outside regular norms concerning like helpfulness and courtesy. But it also seems that sometimes you see if you go down to a specific uh, point, then actually those, the whole question will actually reappear. So I said that games give you a license to be unhelpful towards people or friends. But if you look at this particular guide to the game uh, Carcassonne, it actually, you know, so I, I, there's a particular strategy guide to, to the board game Carcassonne that warns you that it's generally frowned upon to pl place a piece that directly prevents another player from completing a point-scoring city or road in the game. And so, uh, especially if you're playing a two-player game, there actually is no difference between scoring a point from yourself, for yourself or preventing another person from scoring a point. But nevertheless, this guide would actually tell you that, that if you did it in a too-direct way, this would somehow be kind of out of bounds. So you can see that um, I think there really is a high-level level pattern that games allow the kind of transgression of many social conventions but this license is often incomplete and redacted. So some players do feel that their loved ones should always help them, even in competitive games. And not all players accept a game that taunts them. So what does failure do? Well, I think the contribution of failure becomes even more clear when it is absent. So failure does push you towards growth or towards reconsidering what you're doing. But players actually often need to be pushed because they're, in a way, actually lazy. So this is an example from Soren Johnson, one of the designers of Civilization III, who talks about uh, that in that game there was a particular problem, a strategy called lumberjacking, which would, would be that you just plant a lot of trees, and then you, then you, you harvest them, you plant more trees, and this is a great way of generating resources. Unfortunately, players found it really, really boring. But players would still do it. So uh, it seems, again, I said that in a way, we kind of expect player games to make us fail, that in a way, games are, in a fundamental sense, like unnecessary work. But at the same time, then, you also find that it seems that to accept the task of playing a game is to accept unnecessary work. 
But it seems also that once we step inside games, at least in some games, we will actually suddenly become incredibly lazy, even when it's to the detriment of our own experience. And so then you can say perhaps that the task of game design then usually is to balance like the short and long-term goals by making sure that the path of least resistance is also the most interesting one. So in that way, we are kind of weird and contradictory, I think. And so when I was playing Patapong, I was searching for a solution online, and it turned out that there were a large number of players who were, who were experiencing problem as, problems at exactly the same spot as me. And this I took as a hint that it was surely the game's problem, not my problem. And so in general, we are a pretty self-serving species. And so we're more likely to deny responsibility when we fail than when we succeed. And so a technical term for this is something like motivational BS. Uh, but it's also captured in the phrase that success is many fathers, but failure is an orphan, is, is, is an, another way of saying it. Of course, the times I denied responsibility for failure in this game and stopped playing, it also meant that I would actually be forever stuck in this failure state. So by, because I didn't want to experience this failure, I was actually guaranteeing that I, I would forever not escape it because I didn't want to play. And you could say that all, all, it always, it's always the case in a way that the obvious response to failure is to practice harder, but we often choose a less obvious response. Uh, this is often referred to as self-defeating behavior. It's well studied in, in things like education, where students about to take a test might stay up late or consume alcohol, or even refrain from studying. Because if you then perform poorly, it's easy to make the attribution that you failed not due to ability, but due to, say, lack of sleep or being hungover or not having studied. So this is a kind of unproductive relation to failure, right? That in a way you you're seeking it, you're in a way you can actually seek out failure, but if you seek it out in a way where it feels less, less important or where it hurts less. And this, of course, it's not a good thing. Um, for students, I think this is no laughing matter, right? But games are also a little different because games often make it easy for us to redefine what we can consider a success. So if you think of a game like Skate 2 here, um, you can fail in any number of ways, but some players actually go as far as sharing this online. So if you go to YouTube, you can find any number of videos where people share various spectacular failures, such as, as this one falling head headlong into a trash can. And so these players are, in a way, nominally, like on, on paper, acting in a self-defeating way. But of course, a more accurate description would be that they're repurposing the game for themselves. And so self-defeating behavior and this like seeking out spectacular failure are two ways by which we can make failure feel less negative by actually, actually, actively seeking it out. And so, you can, in a way, you can see it like this, that games are often criticized for being power fantasies, which I think we also are. But I do think there is also something else going on. There, games also seem to contain a kind of lack of power fantasy in them, a lack of power fantasy about being stupid or, or incompetent, etc. Uh, but... So if he had talked about this at first mostly from the perspective of failure as a concrete thing we experience where we as players are evaluated, but there's also something else uh, in the fiction of games. Uh, so I talked about failure in, from the perspective of game rules, but let's also talk a bit about failure from the perspective of game fiction, so, which is about the game character failing. 
Uh, so going back in the history of video games, one famous book was uh, Janet Murray's uh, 1997 Hamlet on the Holodeck, which talks about a particular episode in, in Star Trek Voyager where Captain, Captain Catherine Janeway participates in a virtual reality program of a Victorian novel, Falls in Love, uh, goes through a number of complications and actually ends up deleting the program. And Murray describes a kind of appealing vision, I think, of, of this kind of virtual reality a complete world with naturally, naturally engaging characters where you experience a range of emotions that you expect from, say, like literature or theater or cinema. A lot of people were kind of skeptical of this. So, so Mary Lowe Ryan had this argument. She said that interactors would have to be out of their mind literally and metaphorically to want to submit themselves to the fate of a heroine who commits suicide as, as a result of a love affair turned bad like Emma Bovary or Anna Karenina. Um, I was also actually saying similar things in my first book, saying that in a way that the goal in the fictional world of a game has to mimic the player's real-world situation by also being positive as well, so that, that there's some kind of mirroring between those situations. So let's talk a bit about that kind of question of tragedy. So let's just say, what do we mean by this? So here's a kind of fairly traditional definition of, of tragedy by Oscar Mandel. He says, it's a protagonist who commands our earnest goodwill, undertakes some action of, a seriousness and mag of some seriousness and magnitude, and necessarily and inevitably meets with great spiritual or physical suffering. And uh, you can think of this if you think of, of the a kind of hypothetical kind of Anna Karenina game uh, so, I mean, there's a new version out. I still I still think the, the poster here is, is slightly more kind of interesting. Uh, and on paper, it kind of seems, seems absurd, right, that games do tend to promise you something kind of fairly positive. And, and in a way, it seems like odd to have this idea that you could actually do this in game form. I do actually think this has been done to a larger extent uh, than I, I think people are aware of. Uh, and I do think that this shows that in perhaps video games have a kind of directness in a relation to the fictional world uh, that at first seems to make it impossible to deal with such questions or such themes. But I do want to argue that this actually makes something kind of entirely new possible. Uh, but let's think about why tragedy is so hard to imagine. So it has to do with the, how we think the relation between player and protagonist. Uh, I'm talking about here mostly about single-player games and mostly about video games. So in general, like when we complete a game we, or we are, we are successful, we expect that we as a player, as players are happy, but also that uh, our, our, our fictional game protagonist is happy as well. And so likewise, if we fail at any point, uh, we expect us to be happy and, and our character to be unhappy at the same time. And you can see this is why why tragedy seems like such an odd proposition, right? So it seems that, that you, at the very end, you like, have this character that you've been presumably identifying with in some way or another, and the end, and you're like, yeah, and, and the character is deeply unhappy. So, so this, is, this seems like a, very, as a very kind of, like a very odd juxtaposition. But it actually has been done in various forms. So, uh, but you can see that there's some kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive disconnect here. Um, so... A few years ago, I collaborated with uh, Albert Deng and Ken Yang Lee at Parsons the New School of Design, where they made this game called The Suicide Game to test this question. And so this is a game where two players have to collaborate in order to move the protagonist around the room. 
and he has to drink poison twice and stab himself twice before the ambulance arrives. Um, and so this was exactly this kind of juxtaposition, right? So, so if you, if you manage to kill yourself, you'd have like your grieving relatives and also the kind of congratulations screen at the same time. And likewise, if you fail to kill yourself, like, it was like, too, too bad the ambulance has arrived, better luck next time. And so, again, we, we, we observed some people play the game, and they did describe the game as somewhat shocking, but it was also clear that this kind of cartoony quality of the graphics and the kind of somewhat ironic quality of the text did kind of mitigate some of the weight of the subject matter. Uh, so one player expressed what I think was a kind of joyful experience of transgression. So she said, uh, this is awesome. You guys are sick, which I, I think kind of, I suppose, captures it, it well in some way. Uh, but it does also mean that you can say that the question of tragedy is, is a bit more complicated than that. It also has a lot to do with what your relation is to the particular character and, and uh, how that, that kind of relation is presented. Uh, but you can think about it in, in a, this, a mainstream game, Red Dead Redemption. Uh, so this is a big budget game, um, which you can only actually complete by letting the protagonist die. So the overall plot is that John Marston here has lived a life of crime, and he's tried to escape from that. And then uh, some people actually blackmail him into performing a number of, thing, a number of missions that are some, somehow dubious in, in various moral ways which is, constitutes the main of the, the bulk of the game. And once that is done, our character is re reunited with his family, and then you do a number of very mundane missions, such as rounding up cattles and scaring away crowds and so on. And then finally, you're, you're attacked by your earlier tormentors. And so throughout this game, whenever the, the, the protagonist dies, you're asked to retry from the checkpoint. But in this case, then at this very last mission with, with, with him, uh, what happens is that if you die before your family has escaped, you'll always be asked to retry from the, from the checkpoint. Then when, once your family has escaped, you get to this mission like bottom left, where you face overwhelming opposition and there's nothing you can do and you're, you're shot dead. So uh, you can see that asking the player to sacrifice the protagonist is quite unusual for games, but it's also quite traditional seen from, seen from the lens of storytelling, right? So, uh, you can see this does answer one of the problems you had in this definition of, of tragedy I mentioned before, the problem of inevitability, which seems quite odd in games in a way. So you can see that ironically, the game sort of unconventionally has to remove choice from the player at a crucial point in order to create a conventional tragic ending. Another example, uh, or perhaps another kind of of suffering here. Um, the examples here con concerns mostly physical suffering. And again, uh, most definitions of tragedy will acknowledge that it could be something like, like psychological suffering. So this is Brenda Brathwaite's board game Train. Uh, it's play, be playing here, being, being played here. And this at first seems to be a simple multiplayer strategy game where you have to have pack some human figures into a boxcar. Uh, and what happens is once the first player manages to get to the end of the other track, you have to draw a destination card, which are face down. And then it turns out all the destination cards are names of, of German concentration camps from World War II. And so I think in the absence of prior knowledge about the game, most players seem to fail to realize that they're participating in, in this kind of game version of the Holocaust. 
And Brenda Brathwaite, who designs it, ha has described it as an experience of complicity, right? You've suddenly realized that you've been working towards a terrible goal. And so you can see, as it turns out, this use of deception is actually a different kind of experience where the discomfort of having worked for something very unpleasant or, 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 or terrible actually works out, turns out to be a strong emotional device that's very particular and unique to games, I think. And so it's not an experience of, of, of this being a trivialization, but more of being feeling painfully involved in a historical event in a way we don't experience in merely fictional representations of, of these things. Another example might be, be, be Shadow of the Colossus. Uh, of, of course, this is, this is kind of purely fictional, but in this game, in order to save the girl, uh, you have to kill a series of colossal creatures, which seem, turn out to be these kind of slow-moving, melancholy giants. And then at the end of the game, it turns out they were actually innocent, and that you've really been kind of tricked into killing them, and you'll be punished for it, more or less. And again, uh, this result of complicity is actually quite interesting, I, f I find. So it seems that the physical destruction of the protagonist in a game is possible, but in a way, if this kind of spiritual suffering of, of being being forced or being tricked into participating in something terrible is actually more interesting. And it's also more interesting in the sense that the protagonist's position is mirrored by yours because the protagonist has a flaw. And by playing through the game, you also end up feeling kind of directly flawed in this kind of moral sense. And so I do think that w when we think of this from this kind of tragedy in the fictional perspective in games, there is this kind of directness, and I, I think that this is also part of, this is source of many of the con controversies about video games, this kind of confusion about when we talk about games, we often talk about them as if you actually made something happen. Because of, co of course the things in games don't actually take place, right? we, we know this, but we often talk about, about violence in games or whatever happens in a game as, as if it was actually true, and this gives a lot of kind of complication. Uh, but I do think that in a way, this is also like a positive device. So this is an example from, from Psycho, uh, where, when, where Norman is trying to hide the car with the body. And I think this is a famous example. In a way, it's kind of hard not to think about the mechanics of what he's trying to do. But of course, since this, is, this being a story, you can always deny that you actually did so. Uh, so in a way, games are simply more direct than other art forms. right? So, even though, say, a Hamlet has to die in order to complete Hamlet, we also know that this is not our fault, right? So, but if we play a game, you're always like partially guilty. So, of course, the things that happen in the game don't actually happen, and we don't necessarily support them by playing them. And in a way, it's also the designer that has laid out the possibilities. But still, if we were to play like uh, Othello the game or Anna Karenin and the game, we still have to admit that we thought about how to bring about these unfortunate events. They came about through our actions. So I do think in a, in, a, in a concrete sense that games are really the kind of strongest art form for the exploration of tragic responsibility. So this thing that in a way first seems to preclude the possibility of tragic games is actually a new realm of possibility that I think that's kind of unique to that form. So uh, let me end by going back to the game rules. But you can see actually I... I in a way, I talked about this in two different ways. So I talked about failure from the perspective of rules, and I said, in a way, it seems to be, it's easier to deny responsibility for, your, for failure as such in a game 
than it is when you're just when you're not playing a game. On the other hand, when you play when you play a game in which something terrible happens, in a way it's also like harder to deny responsibility than it is in regular non-interactive stories. So you can see by, by kind of comparison, these work in kind of two slightly different directions. But, but let me end by going back to this question of rules. So I asked this question about like why is failure in games fundamentally different from failure outside games? And one way to actually discuss this is to discuss the question of gamification. So gamification, in a way, is an old idea going back to at least the 1970s, this idea of serious games or games used for, for non-game purposes. Uh, gamification is often this idea that, that something like this, games are popular, they, they motivate us to solve problems, so therefore we should use game design principles in the rest of the world. And so this crea creates this idea that if you just organize your organization like a game, you get all this kind of great data for the managers and, and uh, employees can optimize the work for the good of the organization and so on, what could possibly go wrong? Well, so you, say one of the, one of the, you can actually argue in a way that the, the 2008 financial crisis was caused by gamification, by, by making the world too much like a game. So if you read some of the interviews with, say, employees from Washington Mutual, you could see that, that the bank had actually set up this kind of very kind of gamified, a simple setup where, where everybody would get bonuses simply based on the number of loans approved. And so, well, this is kind of classic game, right? You have, a, you have a goal, you have a point system, you have clear feedback, everything is great. Well, of course, except that you are, as, a, as an employee, asked to set aside any notion of sound judgment or anything like that. Um, and similarly, uh, this is often kind of described as, as something that's like super new, but you can also find similar things in, in kind of so the Soviet era. So um, in the 1960s, apparently, uh, workers at factories were, were giving bonuses in, according to the total weight of the output in certain, say like in chandelier factories. And supposedly the chandeliers became so heavy that they were pulling the ceilings down. And so Time Magazine quotes uh, Khrushchev for having said, like, to whom does this give light? Right, so you can see that, in a way, these kind of game things that seem to be the latest in dynamic business ma management can also be seen as a, like this antiqu antiquated bureaucratic Eastern Bloc structure at the same time. And so why is that? Well, you can think about how failure works in games versus outside games. So. Uh, I got fascinated by this idea of, of, of plausible deniability, which was uh, a thing from, from, I heard from Steven Pinker first. So, so Claire, is that a new iPad or? So, so I, if I were to say like, nice iPad would be a shame if something were to happen to it, right? So that, that's of course this kind of film, classic film mobster thread. But it also has this kind of plausible deniability. Perhaps I was just congratulating uh, Clara on her new iPad, right? And so, so you can see in a way, this is what, games give us, right? It, it's not that you can say that this is exactly what game failure means, but just that games provide you any number of opportunities for denying that you care. So even if you're really upset, you can have all these explanations. Well, it's just a game. The game wasn't fair. I don't care about being good at this particular game. This is not important for my identity. Or say I wasn't really trying, or I was hungover, or tired, or what have you, or distracted. So. You can see how this is different, right? So, because if, if, if this happens outside games and we met with this manager who wants us to approve as many loans as possible or to make as heavy chandeliers as possible, we can't just deny that we care about failure because we will be fired. And so, so this is this 
kind of uncertainty about what failure in games means is really the kind of feature, right? That this is this is what games makes available, what games make available to us. Um, so you can put it this way, where the paradox of tragedy that I was referring to, in a way, is something for professional philosophers. The question of what failure means in games is something that we all tend to discuss. So. Uh, we can really deny that game failure matters to us. And sometimes we're even completely dishonest about this. Uh, there's also something fractal about it. So it seems that, well, in games, we treat things slightly differently from outside games. But sometimes it's not quite doesn't work, doesn't quite work that way. Right? We, we don't like feeling responsible for failure, but we also have to do it. It seems that we, ex we, uh, we accept unnecessary challenge by playing games and then we're also very lazy. It seems that we want to, we, it seems that games give us the opportunity to like prevent our, players, our friends from achieving their goals but yet sometimes we don't exactly do it that way. Sometimes we still think that our friends should help us. So you can say that in a way that all of the different kind of discussions and things we have around game playing, about game failure in a way are these kind of practical philosophies of failure. So sportsmanship is in a way a practical uh, philosophy of failure, or just saying that it's just a game, or the fact you're a spoiled sport is, is also a philosophy of failure, or being a sore loser is a philosophy of failure, right? Because that's saying that, well, there actually is nothing particular about game failure that distinguishes it from any other kind of, of failure. And so I think this kind of fundamentally is the feature, right? Uh, but to kind of sum it up, what does failure do? I think failure forces us to reconsider what we are doing. It forces us to connect personally to the events in the game. It proves that we matter, that the world doesn't simply continue regardless of our actions. What does it mean? In a way, it's tempting to say that it's purely subjective, that it's just what we make of it. But the fact is, it's not quite within our power. So. The paradox of failure that I discussed, like the paradox of tragedy and the general paradox of painful art, is not about universal agreements about to seek out things that we normally try to avoid. There are always tragedies that we don't really want to watch. There are horror movies that we are unwilling to, to bear. And there are also always games that we refuse to play with siblings or rivals or bosses or ourselves because we are too afraid of failure. And so Perhaps we like to think of ourselves as these kind of noble sports people, but even the history of top players is full of uh, examples of people who fail that test. So after winning the World Chess Championship over Spassky in 1972, Bobby Fischer began making a series of increasingly unreasonable demand for future matches, and actually ended up losing the title for the very reason. Uh, so Gary Kasparov thinks that the truth is that Fisher was really so afraid of failing that he actually preferred not to play. And then, of course, I you know, like failed in a broader sense. And so, in a way, I would like to remove from language the phrase that it's just a game, because it pretends something that's not true, that failure is neutral as long as it happens in a game. But ironically, it's exactly this kind of faulty claim that gives us a chance to shrug our shoulders while fuming inside. It's a kind of pretense that gives us the freedom to count our successes and downplay our failures, even to ourselves. It's a kind of elusive space, I think, of safety that needs to be protected. But I think it always has to come with this additional license for us to be a little angry and more than a little frustrated when we fail. And so I think this fundamentally is how video games are the art of failure, the art form that deals with failure, the art form that deals with other people's failures, and most importantly, with our own failures.
Thank you. First, I have a feeling a lot of people have questions but are afraid of failing at this. <laughs> so. Um, so I love it. I love what you just said. So uh, um, it's great. And I particularly liked your take on gamification mm-hmm. in that regard. And this is not to sort of s- propose an alternative to what you're saying, but maybe to try looking at it from a slightly different sure. angle and see how you react to it. Which Your initial paradox is that we want to avoid failure, and yet we don't in games. Is there a possibility that there's something called play failure? which is to say that we play at failing. Now, we really fail, and sometimes it feels bad and sometimes we don't play, but sometimes we're really playing to fail to have the... because that's part of what play is about, is, is going into places we don't always want to go. Um, and so it's neither, it's neither real failure, but nor is it just saying, oh, it's just a game, but rather we're having a real experience of play failure. Sort of. Yeah, so, so I, I think we agree quite directly in a sense that... But but I, I think it's just in a way that there that there is no it's not guaranteed in a way right so so it's more that 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 there are various kind of explanations available to us for any any time we fail and and then so like the explanation of play failure is is one of them but it's not something that we can like we can conjure up with certainty and so 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 and again like for example the, the idea of of say playing with with a, with a sibling or, or a boss, I think is is a good example, right? So so then then it's very easy for 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 things to suddenly like enter that that relation that you're supposed to this kind of hopefully kind of carefree space, like egalitarian space. Often these kind of things can can enter it. I mean there, they, there are these kind of stories about playing like golf with Idi Amin and and stuff like that, right? Where where where, where it's very clear that something else else is going on. So, so, so in a way, like also my, my answer to that is like it's kind of both, right? And it's something we negotiate, but it's not something we can control at the same time. Thank you. I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit also. And uh, so I have two questions. The first one is about your dismissal of the typical uh, self-help book kind of uh, definition of failure, uh, because that, uh, of course, also is grounded uh, or at least related to theories of Vig- Vygotsky's yeah. zone of possible development, uh, etc. Et and I wonder if maybe one of the uh, lapses there is just that uh, some of the, and uh, of course Jim G you know, flies yeah. into video games, but maybe it's also just that a lot of the learning theories don't take into account the affect and the aesthetics of uh, learning. And so it might actually not be that those need to be revised, but just uh, attending to the affective nature of that process uh, of learning. And I wonder what you think about that as a first question. But don't you think, in, in a way, it's, it's also, a, it might be a kind of declaration, right, that, that you should take this as a learning opportunity. And so we want you to take this as a learning opportunity and not to think about this as, as, as something that's kind of unpleasant or actually sort of speaks about us, the teachers, thinking that you as a student is stupid, right? Uh, so, so, so it might also be not be, it might be a prescriptive rather than a descriptive statement in, in that way. Yeah. So there is your idea that, uh, that the prescription comes from the term learning I- itself, or because my idea is that just that you could take the term uh, learning, and if you think about it in, as an aesthetic event, yeah. uh, then it might actually be a little bit more in line with what you're uh, talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, and so, so you can say that, that uh, I would agree with Jim G on that, in, uh, or you can also say that yeah, games are, in a way, like the aesthetics of learning, right? With all that, with all that comes with it, right? That it also, 
in a way just kind of makes it slightly different in, in, many, in many ways. And the second question is uh, maybe briefer, but it's just uh, observing that, uh, of course, there's a taboo and shock that you mentioned with something like the suicide game that mm. you uh, put up. And then obviously looking at the history of uh, video gaming, uh, murder doesn't quite uh, capture that same kind of taboo. And I wonder yeah. if uh, 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 but, uh, uh, maybe in the terms of uh, failure or, the, or some of the aesthetic definitions that you provided today, is there some way that you can try to account, uh, account for that, uh, that, that difference? Of course, you know, some games, the, the reason might just be because it's socially, uh, mm. a, a kind of type of murder that's perceived as socially valuable, like in you know, military <laughs> games. But of course, there also is a lot of uh, unpleasant uh, murder, obviously, if you want to put it that way, in a lot of games, uh, too. And just does that have anything to do with your talk uh, today and, and this philosophy of failure? That, that's an excellent question. Yeah, so mm, it's a good question. So it does seem that there's always a kind of easy way out, right, which is like somehow you're, you're immediately threatened by something else, and then by some by extension or by logic that makes it okay for you to kind of kill it. And then the other, the other thing, like the suicide, is, has kind of, kind of deeper, longer implications, like why, why, why would you want to do that? And even it's true, like as you're saying, that, that there may be many, I guess I've kind of at least a few religions that, that actually seem to allow murder under, under the right circumstances, but always disallows suicide, right? And I guess it's a, yeah, perhaps also the kind of copycat question. You might be afraid of doing it. What if someone actually kills themselves and, and, and so on? So of course it was a kind of experiment in doing something that was kind of outside what, what you regu regularly um, do. Yeah, no, I guess I don't have a good kind of explanation of it. it it's, a, it's a good observation, yeah. One of the points that you made early on about how, like, it, it, it's a process of learning how to kind of accept that you're the one who failed and coming to terms with that. I'm actually, like, really, I mean, in my experience, that doesn't always happen, yeah. especially when there's a community of other real people that you can blame instead of the game. Yes. And so, I mean, I was just kind of wondering if you could talk a bit about, like, with tragedy, there's a kind of culture of reception of that. Like, we know how we're supposed to feel because other people model that for us. Yeah. And, like, when, when you have games that you're playing, like, in a sports game, very often, um, like, rules of behavior are explicitly kind of set out for you. And, like, I'm just wondering if you could touch on that kind of... Yeah, yeah, so, so of course, it's true, like, that there, there, is a, there's a, there, there is a similarity right there in, in that you are kind of taught how, how you're supposed to behave. Um, so one of the people I quote describes a few different definitions of sportsmanship or sportspersonship. And they often actually have, a, have to do with like what's inside the game and what's outside the game. Some of them are, are might be this idea that you should not be too sore a loser lest you, uh, lest you kind of endanger future games. So in a way, that, that was like one, one of the, also in the children's book. Some of, some of them other are that you should not be too sore a loser in order to make sure that you don't threaten like the social context. And then finally, there's this kind of noble variation where in a way you should be exceptionally noble when playing games. And this is something that should then after that extend to your regular life. So this should be like the kind of prime shining example. And I do think we kind of, there's always this idea that, that this is what, what sports is. And then there's sometimes, I guess, the, the realization that it isn't quite, at least not always. Uh, so, so I guess I, I just perhaps just agree with you that this, there's a kind of social process, process around it. And then that 
it's always something that, that, that can be quite challenging, especially when you play with new people, right? Because you don't exactly know where the limits of taunting is, or the limits of unhelpfulness, or the limits of, of confrontation, where exactly that lies with this particular thing. Or I, I guess it also happens that if you're, if you're regularly playing with a group of people and suddenly there's a conflict between two people in the group, that, that can significantly change the game playing dynamics. And also, like, like, say, if you're playing online with some friends and then for a long time suddenly you're super busy and your friends just get kind of very good or they get higher levels and they're, they're super top players and then you're kind of like the, the, you're the third wheel and nobody really wants to play with you anymore and it's kind of embarrassing and, and stuff like that. That, that. that happens too. So, again, I just, I just perhaps just agree with you that it's this kind of big social process that's kind of hard to control and predict. Um, so one thing that I'm curious about, um, what do you think about, I think a big difference between failing in games and failing in real life is the consequence that actually if we fail in games, it doesn't really matter to our lives in the end. So I was wondering what you think about that, that difference between learning in life, uh, failing in life and failing in games. Well, well, I think, I mean, it depends, right? So, so, so... Uh, so in game definitions, this is in a way is a classic problem, right? This thing about like, if games, if games are productive, are they still games? So so, Washikawa uh, would think that that if a game, if you're a professional athlete, you're not really playing in in a kind of completely straightforward sense. So um, I'd say it more like like this. I also personally define games as being something that in a way has to be played without tangible consequences. I don't think that you can necessarily say that games, for that reason, are without consequences, even if they're not tangible. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you do also play sometimes to be because you basically want to be admired for your intelligence. I think that this happens, and and say like you're both your if you win a or if you fail that actually in a game that certainly may mean something for your self-esteem or for for others' perception of you. Uh, so a lot of it really comes to how you define that particular game, the task in the particular game you're playing. So um, um, I, I, I don't think I'm going to play this with you, but, but I, I talked about this book like, like last week in, at, at NYU, and we played a game that I call uh, ma Massively Multiplayer Rock, Paper, Scissors, Loser. And so and this was a game, so this is an old game by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen, where you basically everybody stands up playing Rock, Paper, Scissors, and then, like last person standing wins. So, but in this case, it was flipped around. So, if you won, you kind of had kind of escaped, and you could sit down. And then, at the, and and then at the end, there was just one person left, right? And then we had as well. I'm sorry, you, you lost, right? Of, of the of the of the of the audience. And she was very very disturbed, right, and, and upset. And and so again, you could you could argue that. It's not clear what it matter, why it matters, but it's very clear that it mattered to her, and it was very disturbing. Even though it's really clear, rock paper scissors, right? Mm. It's not like it's not like she did something wrong or she had played it with a bad strategy, right? But it's very, very kind of disturbing to her. So you say that in a kind of social context, at least it always matters. But then, in, the, in a way, in a kind of more personal perspective, it also depends a bit on how you perceive the particular game. So. In the book, I quote Benjamin Franklin uh, talking about how all the valuable lessons that chess teaches you. So, of course, it follows that if you think chess teaches all these kind of valuable lessons and you're very bad at chess, then that apparently there's all these kind of important life qualities that you are lacking, right? 
So, so I think, so in that sense, it actually, the, the weight of failure also depends a lot on how, to the extent to which you align your identity with being good at this particular game. And again, it's something you have in some way do in a somewhat subjective way, but it's not necessarily something you can kind of quite control. So it may still like really hurt you terribly, right? Um, and in that way, so for, for, for some people, it may be, it may be what much worse to lose a game of StarCraft than to fail at a, at a, a math test, right? If, if you kind of have, have kind of defined yourself away from math, but defined yourself like up in relation to, to StarCraft. But that means yeah. the better you want to be in the game, the more impact it has on you when you fail. Yes, yeah, and definitely. Um, so again, so it's not, it doesn't mean it's not out without consequences in that sense. It's, it, they're not just tangible in that in, in, in a direct way. We're having a very fun game of who gets to be next. Oh, okay. There's questions up there. It's kind of great. I see some people failing in the back here. Yes. Um, I have two questions, one short. One is, do you talk about robot unicorn attack at all in this book? No. Because when I think of games and failure, that's the first game that comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, that was the short question. Uh, the first time I s heard about this book, it made me immediately think of um, Halberstam's The Queer Art of Failure. Yeah. And I was wondering how or if you thought you could kind of combine her concept of that book of that failure is is a place for generating ideas, mm -hmm. right? And is that we should embrace failure as a place to break away from orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of the the things you were talking about at the very beginning of this, right, where you it, you kind of made the very similar point about games, right, is that we want to engage with failure in yeah. games because failure is the space in which we can experiment with what the game is giving us. Yeah. I'm wondering would, if you could think of some way to kind of marry those together to inform Game design? Oh, okay, to inform game design. Well, I do, I do think that there's a certain, certain amount of similarity between the arguments, right? But, of course, this is not a, a kind of political book. But, I mean, so one of, the, one of the points here, of course, is this idea that, in a way, failure also, a lot of the, w the weight of failure concerns how you frame it and what you consider important at that particular task. And, of course, the, the queer out of failure does a similar thing on a kind of societal level by saying that, well, actually, there are these kind of these kind of standards, but the important thing is also like to trying to fail at these standards and see like other possible ways to 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 kind of live. So, so in that in that way, they're they're, they're kind of pretty. That makes them similar. So, from a game design perspective, I think it has to do with you could say that it has to do with with how strong the punishment is for failure. So, so if I first talk about robot unicorn attack. So, so there is a there is this kind of trend. Some people call it mesocore. This idea that that there are a number of, of recent games that are actually incredibly challenging, um, and and robot unicorn attack might be be one of them. In the fact that it, you you play for such a short time, in a way, there's this kind of paradoxical. You can kind of say like the the casualness of extreme challenge, right? Because if you if a game is extremely hard, then it often means you might only be playing for a few seconds at a time, which is in a way what I call like a super casual value because it means you can just like play it even just like waiting for the subway or, 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 or almost like getting into the subway. You can actually play several games. So, so it's actually super easy to fit it into your life. And, and so, so that makes, that creates this kind, of, this kind of way in which these kind of very challenging games in a way is a way of making things like more accessible. Uh, but it also, the question is also for if we think of this kind of queer out of failure question, in a way it's also about 
what happens when people fail? Like, what are the kind of, what, how, how, what kind of penalty is, is incurred? And so, if you think of of, of the Kinderskate two example, this is a game that doesn't care too much if you if you do something else than than you were supposed to do. And it's also clearly by design that it's up to you as a player to. There might be a kind of official goals, but it's also perfectly valid, okay for you to do something else. And I think this is like something that's kind of fairly new in, 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 in game design and especially comes with video games, this idea you can make a sort of fairly open space and then even though you have an official goal, not worry too much if players do something else and perhaps even support it. And again, this is something that happened after video games like left the arcade. That, that you, for the, in the arcade, you couldn't do it because you had to kind of, you had to kill people if they didn't do the right thing so they could put, it, put in more quarters. But I think gradually when, in, like when games, games kind of came home, people have realized that it's become possible to actually like make this kind of space where you kind of let it be up to the player what exactly it is, it is they want to do. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask about plausible deniability, and I know that Clara and her iPad isn't here anymore. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't disagree with you that uh, games have that sort of quality to them, but don't you also think that uh, a quality of games is that most of the rest of our lives has a sort of plausible deniability of success to them? We are never really quite sure if our success was because of ourselves or mm -hmm. someone being a little kind to us. Yeah. And I think we all or both of you and me at least, tried the same tactics when we grew up with the video games. We tried crying, we tried begging, bargaining, and so on, yeah. but nothing helped. You actually had to solve the problem yeah. before you were rewarded. Yeah. Uh, and if you agree with that, do you see a problem with the trend of wanting to design games so you always succeed in the end. So, for instance, the Nintendo thing with when you fail a couple of times, you get help through the level, so on. All right, so, so there, there seem to be several, several questions. Yeah, in, in answer this. whichever. <laughs> uh, I mean, but for the first thing, so, so again, the, the, you can have like deniability on, on, on two levels, right? So one is like whether Whose fault, it, or fault is it might be one, of, one aspect of it. And you can deny that it's your fault. And the second one is that, that, that whether it, you think it's important or not. And then it, you can say, I think it's very clear that games give a lot of opportunity to, to, for denying that it is important in any kind of larger scheme. And this is what your regular, say like job life, gives you fewer opportunities to do. So say if one had a, had a paper rejected at a conference, if that were to happen, mm -hmm then it's kind of harder to, to, to kind of deny that this is important than, than it, and much easier to deny when you're, when you're playing a game. And let's see, the last year, games that, that kind of always allow you to, to succeed, yeah, it's, it's a kind of interesting question, right? So in a way, I discuss this in, in the book, this, I talk this idea of the games of labor. Games are just reward time investment. And in a way, it's something that goes back at least to like the idea of role-playing games as such, like the kind of ever-increasing stats for whenever you, 
you kind of you kind of succeed in, in something. And and some people I, I quote some some people who, who who say that this is like fundamentally unfair. Um, at the same time, I also think that then in a way you can there, there are several ways of framing fairness. So I discussed this idea that in a way we tend to think of tend to think of games that reward skill as being fair because they say like they just reward skills and this kind of objective measuring stick. Uh, chance can also be considered fair because everybody has an equal chance, right? But of course, in the in, in the one game round, it's in a way unequal because like some people might get hit by by luck. But if you play like any number of many games, then it evens out of, over time. So so in a way, chance is fair in this sense that everybody gets an equal chance. And, and then games of labor of time investment is 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 also fair in the sense that everybody is rewarded equally for effort. And so it, it's kind of, I think it's, it's kind of hard to, to say that one of them is, is the right one. Mm. I personally don't love games of, of time investment, but, but clearly some people do. And funny enough, it's actually something you, you, you will hear about, about raising children these days, that you shouldn't tell them that they are good. You, you, you should tell them that they really put in an effort. That's what you should praise them for. So even though, even then, it's, it, it's not necessarily the worst kind of lesson if you want to see it as a life lesson, this thing that you should put in time. Uh, and, and so all, all things considered, this, this, is, a, this is not a, a bad thing. So, so I, I discussed some of the times where I didn't kind of get further in a game and even say that if I put in more time, it was clear that I would be getting ahead even if it was a, it was a game of skill. So, so I, yeah, I discuss why people like hate this idea of time investment, and but you can also, in a way, say that it's also it's not a terrible lesson in a way. Thank you. Uh, also, yeah, sure. uh, for the answer on how to raise my kids. Uh, so you are Jasper Yul, the ch child psychologist as well. Yes. I right? never yeah. thought that. <laughs> uh, thank you again for your talk. In in the words of the person who played the suicide game. That was pretty sick. Okay. Uh, my question is comes back to my most acute feeling of video game failure was actually playing the game Animal Crossing, yeah. the simulation game where you move into a town full of animals, and and every day you don't play translates into a day of game time. And so after coming back after maybe two years, weeds are overgrown everywhere, there are cockroaches, and all my neighbors said, I was so lonely, these people moved out, how could yeah. you? Yeah. Uh, so I was... This is sort of social failure, this guilt-producing social failure, seems to be a bit different than what we were talking about yeah. here, where the only real lesson you take from it is you should be playing more. Yeah. And it's this kind of guilt that's uh, infamously mobilized by Zynga games like Farmville to keep you coming yeah. back again and again and again. It also works at a different time scale, I guess, than the immediate feedback of something like mm. this. So I was wondering how we might think about this sort of social failure. Yeah, so yeah, no, it's funny that... that in a way, you could say that there is a kind of freedom in, in single-player games, right? the, the freedom from, from other people's judgment. It's not necessarily sometimes a good thing, uh, I think, and, and, and of course, like other people can be used as a kind of coercion method. So, so single games, or like a lot of these Facebook games, are actually quite interesting in that that they, in a way, are kind of considered like the most sort of like unfair games because they're often about like time investment and, and sometimes micropayment. On the other hand, they also like they also you can see them see them as kind of permadeath games without death in, in the way that that often you actually only have one account, right? So so you're, you're only playing one game and it's tied to your account. So if all your crops wither, 
and you don't have the spray to save it, then you're actually like really back at square one. It's really bad. And then also, even though those games don't have a fail state, uh, I personally find them very stressful because for some reason I always find it very hard to make my farm look nice. <laughs> and then I, al I, was, I was always, it was kind of stressful to have the note that pe these people would be visiting my farm and it was kind of like, it was a mess. You know, this kind of thing where, where you can see other people design something and there's like this fountain in the middle and it's like this, this nice layout, but mine, regardless of what I tried to do, it was always this just like humble jumble of, of, of features and it didn't make any sense and this was, this was kind of very, very stressful. And in a way, I do think this was kind of, of course, a great motivator for me to actually buy stuff. I, I resisted in the end, right? But, 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 yeah, so, but I guess I'll just say that certainly in a way that, that there is a freedom in playing single player games and that it's easier to define for yourself what, what, what things mean. And that, and that like multiplayer games, uh, games in a social space are just always that more, more kind of, you're more kind of entangled in other people's perception of you or, or your, your actions. And this is, a, this is obviously both a good and a bad thing depending on what you're, you're trying to, uh, to achieve. So, so, yeah, so actually I talk in the book that, that even, even when you're playing single player games, there, there are these kind of studies that suggest that if people are aware that somebody else is playing the same game somewhere, then they will like try, try harder. So, so right that, in a way, the only way to escape the kind of the, the, the comparison with other people is to actually make up entirely new games for, for yourself and that, that, that way to escape this kind of social judgment even if it never actually happens. I loved your final point about uh, how games are kind of a, a medium of failure, that they, they tend naturally towards these themes. And I think the, probably the, the truest proof of that is just the, the broader resonance that the video game trope of the game over screen has mm. come to have in, in wider culture. I don't think you have to be a gamer to be able to say, oh, game over, when something happens. Um, so I kind of have two questions about that. The first would just be, what's going on in that metaphor? When, when people talk about real-life failure in terms of game tropes, yeah. what's being mapped onto the target domain of, of real life, and what do you think that means? <laughs> and then the second question is maybe more speculative. Um, given that we know that this the kind of game trope of the game over screen has some resonance, do you see this maybe as a site where game designers would intentionally present some content knowing that a player is going to be in a somewhat more reflective frame of mind? I mean, I can think of some sort of naive examples like the Call of Duty games, which if you if you get a game over, you kind of get to read some deep thoughts on warfare by Robert McNamara and yeah. Douglas MacArthur. But is there, is there another way that you could do it? Is there, is there some way that this framing of experience within kind of an evaluation of failure could actually be a site of some kind of meaningful signification. Yeah, I guess for the first part, what's map? I mean, so so it does seem that when you talk about game over, it does. What you I guess what you're mapping from is this idea that in a way a game is is this kind of kind of finite temporary world, that in a way in many ways is kind of complete, almost completely cut off from everything else, and then in a way when you reach game over, that temporary world kind of disappears or collapses. Like entirely, it's, it's yeah. So so I think that's what the game over metaphor means. So of course it's used in relation to kind of real death, but it also means that this kind of thing that all this thing that was going on now is now completely gone. And and I think that 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 that's what what the mapping is. As for as for learning experience or the other experience, yeah, that there are these kind of these kind of kind of important quotes about war. I, I do think games tend to do it in a kind of slightly 
in a slightly less lofty manner by, by say telling you trying to give you information about how you failed or how you died so like in a shooting game you'll often get some indication about who shot you and, and how and so, so there's this kind of low level you might say like practical knowledge that's, that's tied to failure and, and game over screens um, and then I think perhaps there's also a kind of kind of make people play again effect which in this which tends to say like this is give some kind of indication of like what's the horizon here like what's the thing you would need to do to avoid failure uh, in, in the next step and this in a way is what I think games are, are kind of very good at, at, at doing um, so so actually I have a game example I wanted to, to sort of play with select members of the audience okay, can, can we do that so to, to answer the question I think to some extent but let, let, me, let me show you an example of, of what 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 I what I what I think about about this if I can find my cursor here we go. Super hexagon. Oh, so we, we have to we have to start this first. No, I can do it again. Oh. What? Oh. Big screen mode. Oh no. That was terrible. Super hexagon. So, how many of you have played Super Hexagon? Right, so, so, have you played it? I've watched a person play it. <laughs> it didn't pull me in. Uh, so, so, does someone want to have a go? So, basically, it's a, we'll, do, we'll, we'll do the like one try per person thing. <laughs> so, basically, like you control the little triangle and it's left and right with this one, and then like start with by pressing the A, Queen A. So, it's just left and right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Can I pass it on? <laughs> So, so for example, so this is in a way, yes, press green, green. So I think that this is an example of a, of a game that's in a way it's considered like super difficult and super challenging, but it's also super accessible in the sense you, you only waste like three seconds at a time. And also that, that it's whenever you fail, it's like very, very clear what you could have done. You, always, you, all, you can always see the horizon. Well, if I just turn just a little bit faster, and so, so that like the kind of the game over screen. Oh, come on, you you should you should be playing. I understand how. Again. That's part of it. Game over. Yeah. So, so you can see like what 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 you should have done at a, at a particular time. Again. Game over. Good. Good, good job. I'm wondering, do you think that this is sort of a, a legacy of the coin-op era when the game over screen had to invite the player to drop another quarter? Or well, do you think well, this is but it's kind of funny, right? You can, you can see it from, you can see it in, in so, so let, let's, let's pause this, this, uh, this, this, this uh, example again. So, so I think you can see it in two ways, right? So one is, one is from this kind of coin-op perspective, people need to put in more coins. And the other one is from this kind of learning perspective, right? So, so if you just tr the, here's sort of what you need to do. There's just this kind of next thing you need to do to to improve. And then I think you can say one of the one of the differences might be that that some games 
really hit you with this kind of wall, right? Where, where it's kind of it's, it requires a lot of thinking, a lot of planning to figure out like what you need to do in order to to progress. And some games like Super Hexagon has this kind of very it's like much shorter. It's like very clear what what that would be, even though it requires some skill of execution. And then there's this kind of twist to that, which is that puzzles, in a way, by definition, are about making you giving you at least like one moment where things seem impossible. So 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 I think Marcel Denisi has this idea of the aesthetic in the index of a puzzle, where which is higher, the more obvious the solution that the puzzle hides is. So so. So that, that in a way puzzles in a way are almost these kind of meta things about that, that, that kind of learning process, right? That that you, you need to be in this moment where you're tearing your hair out and saying it's impossible. But then of course if you have some kind of faith in, in design, then you'll believe that there still is some way even though you can't see it yet. So in a way that puzzles are also about that, like making the horizon seem very distant and then pulling it back to you and then like, oh, so obvious at, at the end. I was just really in, intrigued by your analysis of gamification, and it just got me thinking a little bit. And I'm wondering, um, you had a systemic failure in that instance, mm. in which this gamification, the failure of it, uh, affected people that were not playing the game. Yeah. yeah. And I'm trying to. I tried to think of games in which that happened, and I couldn't think of any. Mm. And so I, I just was hoping you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, so 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 I think you could say that. So I think that it was interesting to talk about gamification, but in a way it's this kind of reverse process, right? Because no, usually you talk about, well, what are all these kind of cool features you can use from game design in the real world? But then, it, and then when we're thinking about that, it also enables you to think a bit about what it is, why do these things work so well in games in the first place? And I think one of the things you can say that if a game has a goal, and, or, or say like a point system, in a way, and you can say that's the poetry of games, right? Then that is the value. This is what's valuable. To play a game is also to accept that the game says, this is what's good, this is what's bad. And in a way, this is what's kind of beautiful about games, that you can kind of, to some extent, like play without caring about other things. So you're just, just trying to optimize. And this feels so good. And the problem, in a way, and, and I think the reason why, why, and I think this is the reason why it tends not to be that big of a, you don't have this kind of hurting third parties in game playing in a kind of big way for that very reason, right? Because there is something kind of not exactly contained, but at least a kind of internal value set in, 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 a set in games. And the problem then, of course, with, with something like gamification or these kind of elaborate point systems or performance measures is that you're trying to do something that, that kind of claims to represent, you're trying to get a number out that claims to represent the whole system. And sometimes it doesn't. It's actually, of course, it's kind of very hard, right? It's actually very hard to make a kind of objective point system. And then, of course, you, what you easily get to are these, are these kind of oversimplified things. So, like, you're very good, you're very good, you're very good factory if you provide a very, a very, very a lot, a lot of output measured in weight, or you're a very good loan officer if you approve a lot of loans. And and in a way, you could say that. So in this case, what was so beautiful about games is this idea that you can, in a way, ignore context to some extent when you're, when you're trying to optimize your performance. But then it, when you apply this in the wrong way outside games, then you're actually also forcing people to ignore context, which you actually don't want them to. And so, so I think this is, where, this is where I think gamification, in a way, as a, as a general idea, is a way of illustrating what it is that games 
do or why does the games work uh, in the first place? So Jesper, I wanted to ask about um, intentional failure mm. in games, uh, pulling punches, uh, taking the fall, yeah. um, right? So I mean, it has somewhat different implications if it's the, the mob is paying a boxer yeah. to do it, or if you're like uh, playing basketball with, you know, your your daughter or son, yeah. you know, and, and trying to sort of like yeah. let them score some points or something maybe. Uh, but what about in video games, and uh, uh, what does that say about failure that there that there is such a thing as as intentional failure? Yeah. So so first, I think it's quite different in single player and, and multiplayer. So so I talked about this game as players being lazy, and it seems to especially be a a thing if you have kind of very goal-directed single-player games where the goal is quite strongly enforced, so in a way that you're always pressured into optimizing. And in that case, in a way, games of players often seem lazy because they're just really focused on trying getting the optimal path. But if you're playing multiplayer games, it's quite well documented that, that people will do things like this, like playing poorly in order to kind of maintain some kind of game balance or actually maintain even, even the, the possibility of failure. And I also think it's something you can see in, again, like somewhat open-ended, uh, like single-player games, like even like the works of like Rockstar or, or any kind of open-world game, that, that people will also try to set themselves up for failure in order to, to kind of see what happens. Say, like, you know, if you drive the car over, the, over the, the cliff or something like that. So in a way, so it's one of those things, right, that... So we always have these kind of discussions about what, what, what's the relation between design and, and, and play. And, and, and it does seem that there are certain kinds of design that, that are more flexible towards different kinds of use by, player, by players and others. So traditional arcade games didn't allow you that much leeway in experiencing with failure because this was actually costly in a literal sense. And then, then but then now you have home games and you have home games where, where designers perhaps like abdicate a bit of responsibility, not forcing you to follow the goal. Then so that's, that's kind of extra moment of, of uh, opportunity to kind of explore failure. And then of course it's also a, that you have this kind of paraplaning, paraplaying or counterplaying. It's also a kind of a kind of funny thing like this idea of playing uh, playing games deliberately in the wrong way. But again, it it does seem to require a game that that is somehow cooperative, right? That doesn't try to pretend you for, prevent you from doing it in too big a way. But of course it's actually funny that I heard someone, the first time I actually heard someone saying that he, you know, that there's this thing about free-to-play games being kind of very controversial. I actually heard someone saying, explaining how, why he loved them. And he said he loved them because he loved this idea of, of being, of just playing and then like always avoiding, like every time they, they try to force him to pay. And, and that he saw that this was a kind of extra kind of triumph to, to kind of to play against yeah. the intentions of, of the designers. And I was like going directly for that, which of course in a way is like a failure for, from, for, from the point of view of, of the game development company. But, but so, so of course I think this, this idea of like trying to do something else against the designer, designer's intention and, and perhaps like again like making up your own Kind of value judgments or value systems is is a is, I agree this it is a thing right that, that's that's interesting yeah I was I was going to ask also actually about paraplay but 
uh, and sort of the idea like like asteroids, for instance. There's a version that Steve Golson, you know, described to me, metamoids, uh, where you just try to get the smallest score possible, mm, yeah. right? So, but which you actually can't just crash into a rock because if you do that, yeah, you'll get a lot of points. So you want to avoid the rocks and get shot by a. Uh, UFO, uh, oh, okay. but, <laughs> right? yeah. but but so I think there's various things like that. But in that case, the re- the way you can see that that's orthogonal to intentional failure. Yeah, that's a redefinition of success and failure conditions. I mean, but, but it's orthogonal because if you you could still intentionally fail in that game by starting to rack up a lot of points. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So so yeah. so in a way, I think that for, again, for, because games are somehow uh, are to some extent like unanchored, right? It's 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 it, it's more it's easier to def- redefine for yourself or in a group what. what what f- success and failure means, and then you can, like, again, as you say, fail against that new yeah. criteria for success. Yeah. So let, let's thank Jesper again. Uh, Thanks, uh, that's, uh, a very good talk and good conversation. Um, so I want to mention that uh, Jesper's three books are for sale, uh, thanks to the MIT Press Bookstore right outside. And we're having a reception, and we'll be able to continue our conversation with Jesper on the third floor in the CMS area, which is over that way. And uh, so the conversation uh, will continue. But to close out this part of it, I'll quote from uh, the movie Aliens and say, game over, man.